If you have your copy of Scripture, turn to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 20. Now, before you freak out because you've never heard a sermon from Leviticus before, calm down. We're going to continue in our series on the names of God, and God reveals a name in Leviticus that's very important. It's Jehovah M. Kadesh. It means I am the one who sanctifies you. Now, I want to kind of, in an introduction, introduce the book of Leviticus to you a little bit to help you understand it because I did not read the book of Leviticus until I was in college. Honestly, I did not read it until I was assigned to read it in an Old Testament class and I went in with weeping and gnashing of teeth because I thought I knew what Leviticus was about, right? Leviticus is that old stuffy and stale book that has all the do's and all the don'ts and the shoulds and the shouldn'ts and all these really weird and crazy laws that we don't believe in anymore and and we don't really want to read it, right? Wrong. That's not what the book of Leviticus is about. Let me give you some lessons learned in Leviticus before we introduce God today because I think it's important to understand this. Leviticus is a very deeply theological book. In fact, you can't fully understand the book of Hebrews unless you understand the book of Leviticus. The writer of Hebrews is basically taking the book of Leviticus and going, see, Jesus fulfilled all of this. It's a deeply theological book. And here's some things that we learn in the book of Leviticus. All of our life is an act of worship. All of our life is an act of worship. All the things that God talks about specifically in the book of Leviticus is worship. How to conduct ourselves before him. This is what it would look like for God to live in our midst. And so here's what God says. All of life is an act of worship. It's a struggle between are we going to worship the one true living God in the way that he tells us and prescribes for us to worship him? Or are we going to make it up as we go? Are we going to create a God that fits our needs and we're going to worship that God that lets us do whatever we want to do, however we want to do it? So that's one of the lessons that's learned in the book of Leviticus. Another lesson is that God cares deeply about how we live. God cares deeply about how we live. See, this is a both wonderful and scary thing. In Leviticus, we learn that that God really does care about the things that we do and the things that we say. And here's the thing, when we hear that, we think, yes, that's the kind of God I want. I want a God that cares about me. I want a God that is involved in my life. But here's the thing, God wants to be involved in your life. And what we want, what we want is we want God to be distant. We want God to be in this place that's far away from us, but he's just close enough to swoop in like a superhero when we need him. He's just close enough to come and rescue us out of our mess, and then he goes back to wherever he goes. He goes back to his fortress of solitude and lets us live our life. But that's not how God works. Leviticus teaches us that God cares about every detail of our life. And then he wants to be involved in every detail of our life. In fact, God cares so deeply, he has an opinion on everything. God cares so deeply about who we are and how we live that he has an opinion on everything. 
And it makes all these things that seem weird and unrelated all of a sudden take shape and understand God cares about our sex life. God cares about our work relationships. God cares about how we function in a community. God cares how we interact with other nations. God cares how we live. And he has an opinion on it. Now here's the problem. Sometimes we put God's opinion, or most times we put God's opinion in the same category as everybody else's opinion. My mom used to tell me that opinions are like armpits. Everybody has one and they stink. God's opinion isn't that way. This isn't someone just kind of off the cuff telling you, here's what I think you should do, and here's how I think it should work, and who knows, just try it. No, this is the creator of all things. This is the one who knits you together molecule by molecule inside your mother's womb. When he says, this is the opinion that I have for your life, it's non-negotiable. And it's right, and it's good. And here's the reality. He cares way more about how we live our life than we do. We'll get to this in just a second. But all of us, if we're honest, struggle with the reality that we're not that bad of people. We're just not that bad. And God comes along and goes, are you sure about that? One of the lessons that we learn in Leviticus is, well, let me back up before we do that. Because he cares so deeply and has an opinion on everything, our obedience to his opinion and his commands show our connection and relationship with him. Our obedience to what he asks of us shows our connection and relationship to him. And here's what we're trying to say. And here's what Leviticus is trying to say. If you want to have relationship with God, you have to obey what he says. You can't pick and choose the things that you like and disregard the things that you don't, even though that's how we do it. And when I say we, I mean me. I have lived a buffet obedience in my life. And let me tell you what that means. I obey the things that I like and I leave off my plate the things that I don't. When God says, Love your enemies? I'm like, yeah, don't like that one. Not doing that. Turn the other cheek? Nah, I don't think so. I'm just a little too full for that today. I don't think that's going to happen. Our obedience reveals our connection and our relationship to him. And it reveals, and this is what happens in the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel suffered from the isn't it enough syndrome. And we struggle from the same thing. Isn't it enough? Isn't it enough that we come to church and have to listen to Michael every Sunday? Isn't that enough? Isn't it enough that we get up on our only day off of the week and come and sit here for an hour? God, we give you an hour. Isn't that enough? Isn't it enough that I give of my hard-earned money? I just give it to the church. Isn't that enough? Isn't it enough that I've checked off a box and I'm serving somewhere? Hey, I even go to Sunday school. How many people go to Sunday? I go to Sunday school. And then we have some of the special folks that even show up on Wednesday night. 
I go on Wednesday night, isn't it enough? Isn't it enough, God, that I do these things where I don't have to live this stuff out? Isn't it enough that I check off the boxes, but I'm not a loving person? Doesn't that get me off? Isn't it enough that I check off all the boxes, but holiness doesn't show up? Isn't it enough? And God says, no, it's not enough. God cares so deeply about our relationship to him. Here's what he says. I care so deeply about you that I want my character and I want my will to show up in your life. Over and over and over in the book of Leviticus and all throughout the Bible, God says that we've been set apart. We're a holy nation. We're a royal priesthood to go and share the excellencies of God to the world. In fact, he says that later in this chapter. He tells the people of Israel, I've called you and I've set you apart and I've brought you in to relationship with me so I could set you apart for the world to see the difference. Another lesson that we learn in Leviticus is sin is a big deal and needs to be treated seriously. You think that would be a no-brainer. But the problem is, we're not nearly as good or sophisticated as we think we are. Here's the wonderful trick the devil has played on every people group and nation throughout history. They think they're better, they think they're more powerful, they think they're smarter, and they think they're more sophisticated than anybody else. Every nation. People of Israel thought that because they were God's people. They were God's people. And we're better. (laughs) Here's the thing. Every one of these laws that God writes in Leviticus and tells us not to do this and not to go there and not to be this way is because his people were already doing it. Don't commit yourself to idolatry where you had people showing up uh, to go to the temple and they would worship and sacrifice to God and then they would leave there and they'd go out under a green tree and commit all sorts of sexual immorality to some other God. God talked about purity and holiness in their heart and they would sit outside the temple and they would would cheat their brothers and sisters and give them broken and horrible lambs to go sacrifice and make a huge profit off of it and then give that money to God and say, God, aren't you glad I tithed? We're not nearly as good and sophisticated. And here, listen, we're no different. One of the things that just breaks my heart is to hear atheists and skeptics and secular people in this world laugh about Leviticus. Leviticus is their whipping boy. They love to talk about Leviticus. How can you stand and say that you justify a book that talks about stoning people? Well, that makes sense when you understand that sin is cosmic treason against God. And it makes sense when you understand that sin is a stain that destroys everything. It's a cancer that eats everything and doesn't stop until you kill it. But here's what happens. Our culture hears these things and they laugh and they mock and they say, come on, what's the big deal about a little bit of lying? Whoever got hurt with a little bit of lying? 
Anybody want to raise their hand? Every one of us have been hurt by a little lying. Whoever got hurt when somebody stepped out of their marriage vows and committed adultery? Whoever got hurt? Whoever got hurt when a national leader did not take his vow to lead the nation before God who steps outside of that and does what they want to do? Whoever got hurt with that? What's the big deal? The big deal is that we live and have grown up in and been saturated by a a culture that says sin is not a problem. We live in a culture and we're raising our children in a culture that says there is no such thing as sin. The Bible talks about that. In Romans chapter 1, it calls the reprobate heart and mind. The heart and mind that has rejected who God is and rejected God's commands that they come to a place where evil is now good and good is now evil and they call it evil. And here's the thing, they do evil and then they encourage other people to do evil with them. As God is writing this to the nation of Israel, they're still in the wilderness. They've just been delivered from Egypt. They've just been delivered from all of their slavery. And here's the thing, they can't even wait 10 seconds to jump right back into slavery. Build us a golden calf. Let us worship like the other nations. God, let us go. Let us just be like everybody else. And God says, I can't do that. I don't want you to be like everybody else. And you may find this hard to believe, but this is the reality of Scripture. One of the biggest lessons that we learn in the book of Leviticus is our only hope for relationship to God is through Christ. Our only hope for relationship to God is through Christ. So God sets up this book of Leviticus and the rituals and the rules and the sacrifices and all these kind of things because he wants to help us understand and just cut the legs out of this thing that we think all the time. I can save myself. If I just try hard enough and I'm just good enough and I'm just sincere enough, I can do it. And then we read through the book of Leviticus and basically God lays down on the page. He could have really written the book in one word or one sentence. The whole book of Leviticus could be summed up in this. What does it mean to be in relationship to God? What does God need from us for us to be in relationship to him? One word, perfection. We have to think perfectly. We have to speak perfectly. We have to feel perfectly. We have to live perfectly. We have to worship perfectly. And I don't know about you, but that word does not apply to me. So God brings us into this relationship to help us understand we can't save ourselves. And these people live under the weight of all of those requirements. They live under the weight of all those rules. They live under the weight of how they never measure up. Now, here's the cool thing. God gave them forgiveness, real forgiveness, but he didn't remove the sin because the blood of bulls and goats and animals can't remove sin. But in Hebrews 10, we find out that Jesus becomes our substitute. Jesus becomes our sacrificial lamb and he takes away those things. In fact, what happens is God applies the work of Jesus to these people in Leviticus. 
Every time they came to offer sacrifices, God applied the future work, the finished work of Jesus to their imperfect and unfinished work. And so here's a lesson you need to learn from Leviticus that's been taking me years to learn. You cannot save yourself. You can't be good enough because good isn't on the table, it's perfect. And you don't have to be. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to try hard enough. You just have to put your hope and your rest in the finished work of Jesus. He prescribes all methods of prayers and sacrifices and things. This is how we handle your sin. That's really what Leviticus is about. Here's how we handle your sin. And thank God now, here is the prescription for the problem that we have. Here's how we handle your sin, Jesus. You want your sin handled? Give it to Jesus. He'll handle it. So with this framework in mind, I want to introduce you to the God who sanctifies Now, we're not going to read all of Leviticus 20, but it's very interesting that he reveals himself in this way in this chapter. In this chapter, he talks a lot about sexual immorality. He talks a lot about how we interact with other people sexually has a reflection on who God is. I want you to hear in verses 7 and 8, this is how God reveals himself to the people. You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I am the Lord, your God. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. There's his name, Jehovah M. Kadesh. He says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I want to start with verse 8 before we go back and unpack verse 7. Because we can't fully understand verse 7 without the context of verse 8. He says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Now, sanctification can mean set apart. He talks about that. Consecration, sanctification, set yourself apart, be different. But sanctification is also something where fundamentally who you are and what you are is changed. And and there's this new infusion of grace and mercy and forgiveness, and it transforms you. And that's what he's talking about. I'm the one who forgives. I'm the one who cleanses. I'm the one who sets free. I'm the one who settles the debt. I am the one who makes you new. How does he do that? Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And not one jot or tittle would be lost. I am the God who sanctifies you. And here's what he says. I am coming in human form to satisfy and fulfill all that the law demands from you. Leviticus should be one of these books that we read and rejoice in because here's what happens. We can read all of the things in Leviticus and say, I don't, I don't fit that. I fail here. I don't do this. And this is wrong. And here's another thing. And here's just the weight building. But at the end of the story, Jesus says, I came to satisfy I came to fulfill. I came to set right all of these things in the law that the law demands from you and you can't do. 
When Jesus says that he came to fulfill the law, he means to fill it to the full. And how does he do that? I want you to think about this for a moment. It blows me away every time I think about it. Jesus lived for 33 and a half years, we think, on this earth. And for 33 and a half years, Jesus did everything that his father desired him to do. Jesus kept the law perfectly. Jesus never sinned against God, never sinned against anyone else. Jesus was filling up righteousness. Every day that he walked on this earth, he was filling up righteousness. Why? He didn't need it. He was perfect. Why was he doing that? He was doing it for you, and he was doing it for me. Jesus was filling up righteousness. Jesus was filling up all the places where we fail. Jesus was satisfying all the requirements of the law that we don't satisfy. And at the moment that he filled up all righteousness for all people, for all time, he died and unleashed that gift into the world. Think about that. When Jesus died, he satisfied and fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And we're no longer bound by that. Jesus sanctifies us. God says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And the way he does that is he drinks down all the wrath and judgment that you stored up for yourself. One of the things that we find out that sin is so bad and that we in our unrighteous and unrepentant hearts, we store up wrath for ourselves because we don't repent and we don't ask for forgiveness and we don't change. And so Romans 2, 4, and 5 says that we are storing up wrath and judgment in the day of judgment that will be unleashed on us unless something happens. And the something that happens is that one day Jesus went to the cross and he drank the cup. In the garden, Jesus said, let this cup pass, yet not my will, but yours be done. And the cup that he was speaking of was the cup of wrath and judgment that he was going to have to drink for all people for all time, for all sin. And on the cross, God poured out all of his wrath and his judgment and his anger at sin, at your sin, at my sin, at all sin. He poured that out on Jesus and Jesus drank every last drop. And what that means is there's no, le- no wrath left for you. There's no judgment left for you. There's no anger left for you if you trust in Christ. He says, I am the God who sanctifies you. And the way that I do that is I reap the wages of your sin. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death physical death, spiritual death, separation from God. And here's the God who sanctifies us. The God who sanctifies us says, I reap what you've sown. I I reap what you've sown. And on the cross, Jesus tasted death and separation for every person for all time. We can't fathom that. 
I mean, just try to think of that for a moment. In that moment when the sky turns black and the earth opens up and Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They'd had an intimate, personal relationship that we will never understand since the foundation, before the foundation of the world, for all time. And in that moment, Jesus reaped the consequences of our sin, death and separation from God. Jesus tasted death so that we don't have to. Jesus experienced being forsaken and separated so that we don't have to. He's the God who sanctifies. And because Jesus took our place, God then puts us in the place of Jesus. It's the great exchange. It's this totally weird thing that happens in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. We switch places. God puts Jesus in our place and empties out on him all the things that we deserve so that God could put us in Jesus' place so he could empty out on us all the things that Jesus deserves. I'm the God who sanctifies you and listen to how he does that. I deposit eternal, abundant, and everlasting life inside of you. He takes away all the horrible things. He takes away all the the righteous requirements the law demands of us. He takes away all the wages of our sin. He takes away all of the wrath and the judgment. And here's what he gives us, eternal, abundant, everlasting life. He sanctifies us. He completely transforms us for a different use. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. He's saying, I've made you new. I've made you completely new, completely forgiven, and completely full of the Holy Spirit. Now that sanctification process doesn't stop there. It's just the beginning. God begins this work in our life where every moment of every day he's calling us closer to himself. He wants to be more deeply involved in our life and he wants us to listen to the opinion that he has about our life. But here's the thing. We're gonna stumble, we're gonna falter and we're gonna fail and the God who sanctifies says, I'm still here every moment ready, willing and able to forgive, to make new and to restore every time that you ask. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the God who sanctifies doesn't do it one time, he does it for all time. Now, look at verse 7. Once we understand that he's the God who sanctifies and we see the price that he's paid to do that and and the relationship that he's committing to to do that, we need to hear that relationship to God actually means something. Let me say it another way. Relationship to God actually costs something. I really misunderstood relationship with God growing up in the church. and It was my fault, not the church's fault. I heard all the great stuff about grace and mercy and forgiveness. And 
because I didn't pay more attention to the things that came after that, here's what I thought. All God really wants is for me to sign on the dotted line. He wants me to pray a prayer. He wants me to get wet and then everything's good. I can go back to living my life exactly the way that I had before, except now I had super Jesus juice. I could pray and snap my fingers and super Jesus juice would go into effect and I could have whatever I wanted. Anytime I wanted. Well, if you know how the story goes, that's not how it works. I faced trouble and trial and all these things and the super Jesus juice wasn't working. And I came to a moment in my life where I decided, I think I'm going to walk away from this because all this stuff that I was promised isn't happening. And thankfully, someone came into my life like I'm doing for you today to help me recognize that's not who God is. And that's not how God works. That relationship to God costs everything. You no longer have control. In fact, he tells us that we have to learn a new way to live. He says in verse 7, you shall consecrate yourselves. You shall consecrate yourselves. You should set yourself apart. You should live differently than the world. I kind of already hit this, but here's the problem that people don't understand. The book of Leviticus was basically a mirror to the people of Israel and the culture around them. If you don't understand why this is a weird book, that's why. And here's the thing. It kind of mirrors our culture today. All the things that are in there. Sexual immorality, killing children, uh, having all sorts of terrible relationships and hurting the poor and lying in court and destroying other nations for no reason. Guess what? That's still going on. But God says to these people and God says to us, listen, I'm the God who sanctified you. And because I've sanctified you, I'm calling you into a new relationship with me. And I'm calling you into a new way of living. I don't want you to live like the rest of the world. That's been your problem all along. So this new way that he's calling us to live is he's calling us out of darkness and into light. So he says, listen, I want you to think differently. I want you to transform your mind Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us about that, to stop conforming our mind to the world and transform it. Here's the crazy thing. We don't realize how much the culture that we live in has seeped into our thinking. We don't realize how much that we think exactly like the world thinks and how little we think like God thinks. We gotta think differently. When everybody's yapping about my right, my body, my choice, our question should be is, what is God's opinion? I don't care what feels right for me. I don't care what's easiest for me. I don't care what makes things easier for me. I care what God says is right. And we gotta start thinking differently. We have to start speaking differently. 
that our speech needs to be seasoned with grace and with scripture. Colossians chapter four, verse six talks about that, that we should season our speech with grace and with scripture, speaking to the need of the moment. I just wanna be honest with you, man. This, this pandemic has really shown me that I need to deal with some of the things that I say and how that I say them. Because I can tell you a lot of the things that I've been saying to myself and to my family and to other people have not been seasoned with grace and definitely haven't been seasoned with scripture. It's been a lot of I think, I feel, I want. We need to live differently. We need to put off our old self and put on Christ. Colossians chapter three, verses five through 17 gives us this beautiful picture. He says, Paul says, listen, when you enter into relationship with Jesus, it's time to take off the old clothes. They don't fit anymore. They don't look good anymore. And I've used this analogy a hundred times, but one of the favorite pieces of clothing that I had growing up was jams. Does anybody remember jam shorts? They were an atrocity. They were like half shorts and half pants. They would come down past your knee and they had every color in the rainbow. My favorite pair had 19 different colors in them. I've thought about showing you a picture, but I didn't want you to go blind. <laughs> if I had shown up today in jams, everybody would have been like, what were you thinking? Amen. What were you thinking? <laughs> but here's the deal. It's easy for us to see that in clothing. It's diff difficult for us to see that in lifestyle. Here's what Paul says. Hey, listen, anger doesn't fit you anymore because you've put on Jesus. It's time to take off anger. Gossip doesn't fit you anymore because you put on Jesus. Greediness, sexual immorality, cheating, lying, these things don't fit anymore. It's time to take them off. And I'll hear people say, well, this is just the way that I am. I've always struggled with this and I've always had difficulty with this. And here's what I would tell you. I would agree with you 100% if there was no such person as the Holy Spirit. God himself has planted God himself inside of you. And so if you're trying to deal with this on your own, remember you can't. It's time to put it off. Let the Holy Spirit put it off. We need to desire differently. We need to desire God's will for our life and not what the world has to offer. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 tells us not to love the world, to not love the things of the world, to not be captured by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. I have been very guilty of baptizing the world's things and saying that I'm pursuing them for Christ. If the world says to be somebody, you gotta have a nice house, a nice car, this, that, and the other thing, well, I just baptize that and say, well, God's just blessing me with that. I'll never forget, I had this pointed out, I was preaching a sermon one time and, and, and about something like this, and I had a guy come up to me at the end and he says, 
Thank you, you've helped me understand that God is powerful and God is big and God is good. And so now here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna put my faith into action. There was a house that we wanted to buy that's about $100,000 more than we can afford. We're gonna go buy that because God's big enough. We need to desire differently. We need to desire God's will instead of what the world thinks is right. Relationship to God actually costs something, and here's what it costs. Holiness isn't an option, and it's not negotiable. He says, consecrate yourselves, and then he says, be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Holiness, depending on how you grew up, is something that you don't understand or you don't want any part of. Because in a lot of Christian traditions and dominations, we don't talk about holiness and purity at all. We give you a list of things that you should be doing and you shouldn't be doing and say that's holiness and that's not it. Or you grow up in a tradition that's very legalistic and so it's talking about being pure and being holy and being separate and all it does is choke the life out of you. Holiness is what happens when you are filled with a holy God. You can't help but it start to come out of you unless you fight against it. God is filling you with his holiness and he wants his holiness to show up in your life. And this isn't a negotiation. I, I worked a long time in children and youth ministries and what I would tell the kids in my children's ministry and my youth ministry, here's the things that I've set down, here's the things that we're gonna be doing and when someone would say, well, I don't wanna do that, I would tell them, I don't negotiate with terrorists. And neither does God. God doesn't negotiate with terrorists. No matter how many times you pray about it, no matter how many times you talk about it, no matter how many times you convince yourself that it's okay for you to do what you're doing, God's never agreed to that. No matter how many times that you tell yourself that, hey, this one thing can't be that bad and it's really not that bad and that I don't keep all the things that God says and I don't really believe all the things that God says is not that bad, right? Wrong. God didn't sign that contract and he doesn't negotiate with terrorists. But here's the thing. This is the constant struggle of our life. Who are we listening to? Are we listening to the voice of the Spirit that calls and says, hey, this isn't right. This isn't good. This isn't what I created you for. Or are we listening to the voice of our flesh that says, do what you want. Do what you want. It's okay. You're not as bad as this other guy. You're definitely not as bad as they are. Don't worry about it. Or my favorite one when I was a kid. Mom, everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it. Why can't I? And you know what she said, right? If everybody was jumping off a bridge, would you do that too? Who are you listening to? Relationship to God actually costs something. But we also get something. Blessing and intimacy come from obedience. Look at the beginning of verse 8. 
You shall keep my statutes and practice them. John 14, 21 says that the way that we love God the best, the way that we example our love for God the best is by keeping his commandments. In fact, Jesus says it this way, if you love me, keep my commandments. And if you keep my commandments, my father and I will come and make our home inside of you. It cost us something. We have to keep the commandments that Jesus has given, but the blessing is intimacy. Jesus makes himself at home inside of us. Remember we talked about that God cares so much about what's going on in our life that he has an opinion about everything. And that he wants his will to be evident in your life. So here's the question. Is God's will evident in your life? Does what God think about things show up? Does what God say about things show up? Does what God requires of you show up? Now, I know that's an easy test because here's what we're all going to say. Yes. Yeah. Husbands, do you see that in your wife? Wives, do you see that in your husband? Kids, do you see it in your parent? See, if we really want to know if God's will is evident in our life, we need to go to the people closest to us and ask them. And I've already alluded to this, but as I was driving here this morning, I was just praying because this message has really wrecked me this week. It's really revealed to me that there are some deep places in my heart and my life that I need to deal with. And it's funny because it's usually in pressure situations where those things come out. And man, have we been living in a pressure cooker the last 11 months. I'll explain it to you this way. I share this a lot in premarital counseling and even marital counseling, but right before Heather and I got married, we were going to premarital counseling and our counselor told us something that I thought was completely idiotic. She said that the first six months of your marriage, there's gonna be so much pressure that you're gonna start seeing things about yourself and about your spouse that you never knew was there. And I was like, ha, ridiculous. We've had conversations, I'm good, she's good, I follow Jesus, she follows Jesus. What could happen? Let me tell you what happened. I got married. And I had to live with this person 24 hours a day and all of a sudden something started changing inside of me. I became selfish. Like overnight became selfish that I have to answer to this person and tell them where I'm going and tell them what I'm doing and sharing our money and all these kind of things. I became selfish and I was upset about it. And I told her, you made me selfish. <laughs> right? And I had to deal with that. And thankfully the Lord was gracious and he helped me through that. And all of a sudden I was not selfish anymore. Never had a problem with selfishness ever again. So we had Cameron. <laughs> and overnight, selfishness appeared. 
And he didn't understand. He was a baby, but I kept telling him, you've made me selfish because I didn't want to get up in the middle of the night and change a diaper. And I don't want to have to stay home all day and watch you. I want to go do what I want to do. Here's the reality. You're probably seeing things in your life right now that you don't like. I know I am. Please do not make the stupid statement that I did. Oh, this caused me to be this. It's the pandemic's fault. No, it's always been there. The pandemic has just revealed it. Now, before you get broken, before you get overwhelmed, before you tune me out, you need to hear this. Just because God isn't as evident in your life as you want him to be doesn't mean it's over. There's this beautiful term that's put all up in the sanctification that he's talking about. There's a beautiful term that we have that nobody else has. Repentance. The willful turning away and turning to. See, the beauty about Christianity, there's so many things, but one of the beautiful things about Christianity is this. You can stop anytime you want to. You can turn around anytime you want to. You can surrender anytime you want to. And the same God who did all the things that he did to sanctify you is standing right there, ready, willing, and able to say, okay, I'm here. Okay. You surrender it, I'll take it. You turn, I'll forgive. I will forgive, I'll clean it up, I'll restore you, I'll set you on the right path, and we'll move on. So here's the question. Are you ready to turn? Let me let you in a little secret. Every one of us in here has something in our life that we need to turn from. Honestly, if we were being honest, every week, every one of us should be on our face right here, crying out to God, asking him to move. Now, there's nothing magical about coming down front, but there's something powerful about it. The willingness to stand up and say, I'm not ashamed that I'm willing to turn and let God be who he is and do what only he can do. What are you gonna do? Let's pray. Father, in the stillness of this moment, I know that you're speaking to us because you're speaking to me. And I know that we all have places in our life that we don't line up. We don't measure up. So God, help us today to run to the only remedy there is, the only hope that there is, Jesus. Help us today to say enough is enough. To stop to drop all the mess that we have and to turn to you and receive forgiveness and healing and restoration and newness of life. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.